Right. Yes. Um, so when I interrupted these opening remarks, I had envisaged welcoming you warmly and enthusiastically, but not obviously with the sense of relief I now feel after a week of extreme weather, extreme printer failure, and even boiler failure um, in the chapel. Um, so I'm grateful that you've all managed to make it here. I hope we won't be too crammed and hot in this room. Um, I want to begin, as is customary, by thanking our sponsors, without whom um, this event would not be possible. I want to thank the AHRC, which has supported me with my leadership fellowship, the Geoffrey Bequest to Brasenose College, which has provided crucial seed funding, the Paul Mellon Centre for British Art, which is sponsoring um, the panel on uh, Anglo-French connections, and Torch, um, which has provided the framework for my Knowledge Exchange Fellowship with Historic England and the National Trust. And of course, I want to thank Waddesdon for hosting us generously tomorrow. Um, and I want to tell you there will be heating in the room where we're having the conference tomorrow, but we do expect that it will be very cold in the house, even though the sun may be shining. Um, now, this project is very much a team effort, so I want to thank my wonderful collaborators, Juliet Carey, Sylvia Daverley, David Rechter, Oliver Cox, and Pippa Shirley, with whom it is a delight to work. I didn't realise that collaboration could be such fun. But also, I want to thank our partners, the National Trust and Historic England, especially Nino Strachey at the National Trust, who has really uh, thrown her weight behind this initiative. And I want to thank the AEPJ for the enthusiasm with which um, it's uh, taking up working with us. It's great that Asuncio Hosto can also be with us um, for this event. Now, I also want to thank those people without whom this event would not be going forward in a more practical way. Um, Isabel uh, there, who has stepped in and been amazingly efficient and helpful, and Barbara. And in particular, I want to thank Barbara, who has battled computer failure, boiler failure, and transport <laughs> failure, not to mention the endless list of people who heard about this event on the grapevine and kept saying they wanted to attend. Um, so I have arranged to thank Barbara with flowers, but in the meantime, I think she deserves a round of applause. <laughs> so now I will move on to more substantive things. Um, I'm not giving a paper, but I thought it would be helpful to make a couple of big picture remarks which will help us frame what we're trying to do. And I think the best way to capture this might be to explain what it is that excites me personally about Jewish country houses. So first, there's the personal side. Some of you may know that I'm a child of the cousinhood, as Heinbermann uh, called it, these intermarried families which dominated Anglo-Jewry for over a century. So I am, in fact, the kind of Jew who has relatives who shoot pheasants, campaign for deer hunting, and breed racehorses. <laughs> Even as they engaged in more normative Jewish pursuits, like stockbroking, my grandparents and their relations lived the lives of country squires and landowners. Though, alas, my particular branch of the cousinhood mostly didn't build such grand dwellings or collect fabulous art on the scale of some of the properties we'll be talking about today. Second, there is the way in which Jewish country houses relate to my current work on Jewish liberals. So this project originated at 
Waddesdon, which we'll visit tomorrow. And my interest in it was sparked in part because German-born, Austrian-bred Ferdinand de Rothschild was a Liberal MP. Thinking about Waddesdon brought home to me how important Jewish country houses were as liberal salons and venues for political house parties on a grand scale. I think they illuminate the way in which Jewish men and women from the highest social echelons operated in contexts where liberal politics and aristocratic worlds intertwined. <coughs> and this, I think, is a theme of relevance to many of the properties represented at this conference, not just Waddesdon, but Strawberry Hill, the Salomons Estate, Villa Kerilos, and Schloss Freienwalde. Third, there is the realization that these properties raise so many interesting questions that both modern Jewish history and apparently country house studies have ignored. They add, I think, a new dimension to our understanding of the modern Jewish experience because they foreground the role that rich Jews assumed in the countryside through their rural estates and properties, rather than as quintessential members of the urban bourgeoisie. We always knew that rich Jews bought and developed these properties, but I think we've given too little thought to what this actually meant. Fourth, as a European historian with one foot in Anglo-Jewish history, I'm excited by the properly European nature of this conference. It promises, on the one hand, to help internationalise the field of country house studies through a focus on the cosmopolitanism of many Anglo-Jewish country house owners. And this theme we explore particularly in the panel on Anglo-French connections, which is sponsored by Paul Mellon. On the other hand, it prompts us to question assumptions about both the distinctiveness and the Englishness of the Anglo-Jewish elite. It isn't just that the cousinhood had parallels in other European countries, although they did, but that the great Jewish families of continental Europe, like the Bischofsheims and the Stearns, and of course the Rothschilds, married repeatedly into this Anglo-Jewish world. Finally, although arguably this lies at the heart of this project, I hope this conference will help shift the boundaries of what we mean by Jewish heritage. In fact, this is already happening at Oxford in the Ashmolean Museum, where Rebecca Abrams has put together her Jewish journey, which tells the story of Jewish people through 22 objects in the Ashmolean, which are not normally viewed in a Jewish context. Too often, I think, Jewish heritage is taken to refer simply to synagogues, cemeteries, and traces of Jewish absence. Jewish country houses tell a rather different story of adaptation and integration, of Jews who flourished and left their mark on buildings we, in Britain at least, cherish as part of our national heritage without ever really stopping to consider the Jewish dimension. When I visited Walter Rathenau's country house, I was struck by a comment in one of the leaflets about the failure of Schloss Breienwalde to establish itself as a site of memory in the public imagination. This failure, I think, is generic as well as specific. At present, Jewish country houses are neither a concept in Jewish history nor a site of European memory. Or perhaps I should say, not yet. Thank you. Thank you.